Good day, and welcome to the delayed, but not nearly so long delayed as the last one, recorded conversation with Professor Michael Drought. I sat down and recorded this conversation with Professor Drought on April 16th, the morning after he gave his lecture and before he came to my class. Professor Drought is one of the three co-editors of Tolkien Studies, the foremost journal of Tolkien scholarship out there, so I began our conversation by asking him about the forthcoming number. I'm sure that people would be really interested to hear the stuff that's coming down the pipe in the Tolkien Start with publishing that. world. Yeah. Different. Well, I don't know much about the Tolkien publishing world because it's very <laughs> strange and secretive and weird. Not so much from the estate, but like people, I don't understand how they do things. So, uh, but I, I can't say about that. But uh, Tolkien Studies Volume Seven is we're at the final stages of editing. We always try to get it all edited before Kalamazoo, and we're always sort of just barely getting it <laughs> under the wire. And every year we try to push it back earlier, and something. Something comes up. The the big thing in this one is it's Verlin Flieger has done an edition of Tolkien's work on Kalevala, on Finnish mythology. So he's, she's got his earliest story that he ever wrote that we know of, wow. which was his version. He said he wrote to Edith and said he was doing something on the story of Kulervo, which is eventually his model for Turin and stuff, right? right? But he's he's doing it doing it as prose with chunks of poetry in between, sort of like William Morris. Right. And so we have both, and it's his translations of Finnish. It also suggests that he actually knew a lot more Finnish than he admitted, including in this actual lecture where he says, you know, I don't really – I failed. I made a full frontal assault on Finnish and failed and you know, was repulsed with heavy losses or something. <laughs> but he, he knew enough to, to get the meter down and to, to understand other things. I mean it's, it's the Hiawatha meter. Right. That, right. You know that, and, and Tolkien makes fun of that. He doesn't, you know, the Hiawatha is not good, and the meter is very repetitive. Not so in Finnish because the language sounds good, and so forth. So right. that's the big piece in this issue is that we've got the Kulervo story, which unfortunately breaks off before the actual suicide and before the sword talks and stuff, but it has the other things and, and, and works out really well. And and it's his own little modifications. So in the in the Kalevala. Kulervo is always described as fair-haired, blonde, and everything, and, and handsome. In this version, he's ugly. Oh, really? And that, yeah, and that's like, and that's one of the other reasons that he eventually assaults his sister. He doesn't know it's his sister because no one will go with me because I'm so ugly. And so there's a, there's a something on that. Um, but it, it's very interesting. And then he wrote an essay about the Kalevala, explaining it to people who've never read it. And there's two versions of that. There was a manuscript and a typescript. <laughs> which were slightly different, so Verlin edited both. So it's like, in manuscript, I haven't seen it laid out yet, it's 84 pages, so wow. it's a lot of material that's totally new by Tolkien. So that's been... Now, one of the good things about Tolkien studies is that the estate has sort of recognized that it's a good place for people to publish short things. So we published right. the note on free will that Carl Hostetter did, the Sir Orfeo piece that Carl Hostetter did for Tolkien studies one. Um this piece on Kulervo, we've got a piece coming out from John Garth that's not really from the Tolkien estate, but is really cool because he tracked down in on fairy stories. He was talking to a child and he asked the child, uh, "Who do you think lives in that flower?" And pistols and stamens, of course. And well, John Garth tracked down who that child was. Actually, <laughs> figured it out by by some luck and reading letters and stuff. And it was probably, I think, it's Christopher Gilson's nephew who then went on to a distinguished career and all kinds of things at the Aquatic Fisheries Service. And, <laughs> and he's got pictures, and he's got an explanation of the things. So that's really nice. We always have a, a section in... We always have a section in Tolkien Studies Notes and Documents, and that's right. where this kind of stuff goes. Right, neat. And 
Then the other things in the issue, I, I was thinking of this when I looked it over, it's by a lot of new scholars that people don't know about yet, that I didn't know about yet. People who are just finishing their PhDs, people who are from places like Japan, which right. we've never had anyone from the eastern part of the globe publish in Tolkien Studies before. So we have a piece on Sindarin in Welsh uh, that kind of builds on Dimitra Fimi's cool work there. Uh, we've got some very theoretical stuff from Eastern Europe, uh, one on Tolkien and games and how the rules of the Lord of the Rings and, and the Legendarium sort of mimic the rules that would eventually evolve for role-playing games <laughs> and, you know, consistency and, and so forth. And it's very, very interesting. One of the most interesting pieces is by a scholar named Vladimir Brilyak who's talking about Tolkien as a metafictionalist, as someone who's right. you know, writing narratives. And he makes a really good case that Shippies... Shippy has this really good argument. You, you know the argument where that when he finally stopped writing all the stupid frame narratives, then he could get down to business and write the story. Right. And I, I think that's probably phenomenologically true that he had so much fun with frame narratives and you know the Notion Club papers or, or right. whatever it was. Right. He had so much fun with it that he really had never got around to writing the inside stories sometimes. But I think this is a pretty good argument when you tie it in with uh, Gergai Naj's uh, piece on the great chain of reading and how the Silmarillion makes it feel like there are multiple layers of text. This new piece sort of traces out how many layers there are in, in between so that it's not just that the Lord of the Rings that you hold in your hand is the Red Book of Westmarch. Right. It's redactions and translations by Tolkien of redactions and modifications by other scribes. Of uh, It's got a multi-layered history in there, including different branch points, right? The one that Mariadoc took to Rohan, the one that right. was in the West Towers, the one that was, the one that was edited in Gondor, in, in Gondor by Gondor. a scribe, yeah, exactly. a king scribe. And I think that he makes a good case that whatever the psychology might have been, like, okay, stop with the frame narrative and just tell the story. In the end, Tolkien managed to go back and put in all that kind of complexity, which I think is is like it's something that hasn't been recognized enough. It's recognized very shallowly sometimes. And it's, Verlin Flieger does a good job in one of her pieces of talking about the stairs of Kirith Ongal and the big book with red and black letters. But it, it hasn't been thought about in, in this, this way of, of metafiction and fiction about fiction. And as a medievalist, I love this because this is what we deal with all the time. Right. I mean, we right. already knew this stuff. The postmodernists are very late to the table, but um, yeah. we'll, we'll let them in. Yeah. Oh, different layers of manuscript translation and transmission and, and people messing it up in different ways and changing things. And now we have lines like, more cannot be said of this matter. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, even just, you know, you can sort of hear the... Uh, the the delight of a medievalist in lines like, but the most important manuscript has a different history, right? Mm-hmm. When he's talking about the the red book and the uh, the version from the the you know even including the little scribal note, uh, you know, by the by the Gondorian scribe and in the, in, in the mm-hmm. one thing you know that this was written by Findigil, king's writer on the you know it's, and it, you, you you can see how much certainly how much fun he was having with that. Um, and then the, uh, the argument on top of it is not just the fun, but that it right. actually makes a big difference in, in how you approach the text and, and how it works out. And I have to really think about this article more. I have a piece coming out in a little collection uh, that it's called The, the Rohirrim, the Anglo-Saxons, and the Problem of Appendix F. Right. Because that is a problem. And I have been very quick to just, like, dismiss it, which is that, look, they speak Anglo-Saxon. 
I don't care if he says they're not Anglo-Saxons. They're Anglo-Saxons, okay, but they ride horses. Shippy Solution is they're Anglo-Saxons before they came to England. That must have been what they're like on the continent. Done. Other people who write me obnoxious emails are like, he said they weren't Anglo-Saxons, and that's it. Right. But that's the author. But it's never wise to count out Tolkien's authorial intent because he did manipulate and change things. And so I need to think about what Appendix F means, you know, where he says, well, I... Because I guess where I'm coming from is we know for a fact that most of it's post facto. Right. Right, because he, he's stuck with the names from The Hobbit right, right there. And he, we knew that those were not chosen originally. They're just the random dwarves from Volospa, right, from the Dvergatal. Right. right. Um, so I've been inclined to think that Appendix F is a post hoc rationalization. This new paper by Berliak suggests that it was done much earlier, that that linguistic plan, and that therefore you need to reconsider some of the things that are going on there. And I think that it's really worth doing. It's really worth metafictional. I mean, in, in your class today, we're going to talk about the stairs of Kirith Ungol and yeah. Shelob's Lair, which is where Verlin has talked about the, the metafictional level. I think there can be even more done with that. Yeah. Well, and it's one of the things that I think is so interesting. And certainly when we, t- I mean, we talk about when people ask about the, the sense of depth and the sense of consistency, it's one of the things that rarely, it it's rarely really comes to the attention of the common reader, but I think it really affects it. This sense of this text that you were reading itself, you know, has a self-conscious uh, history and mm-hmm. transmission history. His own revisions and his own corrections and the way that he doesn't try to conceal those but integrates the revision history of the story itself into the story um, is, is certainly one of the things that's most complicated and, 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 and provides so much to the richness of the story. I was talking in my class a little while back when we were doing The Hobbit and we were looking at the Riddles in the Dark chapter and sort of looking at the changes that mm-hmm. he makes. There's sort of a, a little brief brief glimpse into some of the complexities of the text there. And it's, the appendices are certainly very interesting because you know, the, the, the tone that he uses when after the fact he's commenting on things or working out mm-hmm. something that he hadn't worked out before can be so misleading because he'll speak with he, – he's so good at speaking so confidently as if this had been the plan all along or, you know, this is obviously the thing which is now coming to – that when he was – even in his letters, he'll adopt that same tone. Well, well, clearly the backstory to that is this, and he's just making it up right. at the time. <laughs> There's some really interesting stuff in um, John Ratliff's History of the Hobbit yeah. book where he started to rewrite the Hobbit completely in the Lord of the Rings style. Right. And – you know, there's a lot more little drop names of elves and, and of, of place names in Sindarin and, and so forth. And he wrote some of it and showed it to, I forget who he showed it to, he said, well, it's very nice, but it's not The Hobbit. Right. And so he left The Hobbit alone. And I think that that's, it's really interesting to look at what he thought The Hobbit would have evolved into if he made it completely consistent in style. But I think the bigger point is it works better with the whole conceit that The Hobbit is sort of Bilbo's memoirs and then modified Right. Now, that's the whole thing. Right. Modified by various generations of scribes into a children's book. Right? So <laughs> yes. Bilbo writes down the story maybe in the Lord of the Rings style or maybe in something else entirely, and it gets modified into a children's book in the tradition of the Hobbits. Then the Lord of the Rings, it's Bilbo, Bilbo and Frodo's memoirs, it's, so it's Bilbo. It's then polished over by Frodo. But then there's all these other editions, and that's right. where you can actually get it to work by students like, well, why would the poems be there? And this is something the students always ask about. Why? Right. You know, how does that work? Because they're, they're still in this realistic literature paradigm. People don't just burst into poems. Well, they do burst into songs sometimes. It's just silly pop songs, but it's, right. it, it still fits. But if you then think, okay, so it's 
Bilbo's memoirs and then Frodo's memoirs, and it probably says something, I'm being a little too hypothetical, but it says something like, and then Sam told this poem about a troll. Right. So some other scribe, and this is we see in Medieval Lit with Cadman's hymn in Bede. That's what I'm thinking, right? right? So yeah, then some yeah, other yeah. scribe comes in and says, yes, here's Cadman's hymn in Latin. Oh, I know it in Old English. I can put that in there. Yeah. And likewise, you know, the stone troll. Oh, we have a poem, the stone troll. I'll put this in. I'll put in Arundel was a mariner, even though there's, you know, obviously no way that Frodo could have remembered. I guess Bilbo could have written it all down afterwards, too. And, and, and Especially things. since Frodo describes himself as being almost almost unconscious throughout it. Not even recognizing mm-hmm. what's happening. And I yet. just realized how this could be used to solve a crux. That's really cool. <laughs> um, Yoko Hemi's article on Sindarin and language and stuff has this whole thing about how does Sam, when he shouts out at Shelob's Lair, which we're talking about today again, how does he know this? Because it's not actually the version of Elberth Gilthoniel yes. that he's ever seen before. It's heard. a totally right, different right, right, one. It says, right. you know, he, I who am in the path of darkness or something, you know, need help. And... There's no way for Sam to have learned that. And it just comes to him anyway. And so what is this, magic or anything else? It's also now, if you think about it metafictionally, so everyone thinks of it in terms of the characters. Yes, there's right. something, same thing with um, Mary's curious dream at the Barrow. Yes. Right? Who's, is, is he possessed by the, the spirit of the Barrow? What does that mean? Shippy talks about it. Flieger talks about it a lot. I just realized, if you think of this in terms of metafiction, those are things some other scribe... Threw in there, Could have right? Inserted, so right. you know, Sam cried out something, something, <laughs> and and so if, if think again, like Bede or someone copying Bede, you know, says called out this verse from the Bible. Bede doesn't have to write it out, but I know my Bible Latin; I can write it down. Likewise, this scribe is, I know what he must have said because he must have said, "Elberth, please come to me in my hour of need and help," and puts it in there so it then that really undercuts the whole like some magic came into sam's head and that's what's so interestingly like corrosive about all this (laughs) metafictional stuff because you can then sort of squeeze out a lot of the magical bits i mean again it's all narrative it's all being controlled by tolkien gergai naj once said that he thought there was no magic in the lord of the rings that it was all either technology like rings or magic door dwarf opening doors right and Gandalf's fireworks from from the ring and stuff like that, and no real magic. And I said, "How does Galadriel's rope untie? How does it, came it untie?" When he called, you know, yeah. that's what, that's what it's that like. technology too. The smart <laughs> smart rope, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's also then you can you start to think of this as as this layered metafictional yeah. creation, right? So it's not just the story of Bilbo or the story of Frodo, but it's how other people would treat it and would modify the incidents and would... And all of a sudden, you have a great answer to those people who say, oh, the Lord of the Rings, the characters lack depth or they're always, you know, predictable. You could really, if the copyright thing wasn't an issue, you could go right back and write the real story of what happened, not through the eyes of the hobbits. You know, maybe the variant of this whole story that's from the point of view of... Gimli and how stupid these hobbits are, or something. And you know, what a waste! Why did we bring them? You know, always, they don't contribute anything, and they're just baggage. And then we have to chase them around, but they're good for stirring up ants. I mean, it's, right, right, right. So th- that's a really neat way of, of looking at it. And I think it's it's he opens that up in the stairs of Kirith Ongal inside the main yeah. narrative. Well, and there are clearly other moments, especially when you talk about the songs. I mean, the, the one that comes to mind immediately is the song that is sung upon the departure of Theoden. Uh, after the weapon take, when he's setting out on the trip to Minas Tirith, and there is this 
elegiac poem describing clearly from the point of view of 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 you know the after lore and this is the moment when Theoden departs mm-hmm. on his on his you know his great and glorious uh, trip that will be his death something which is explicitly outside of the plot of the you know of, of the time sequence but plainly an an, an ex post facto inserted poem very baldly uh, there um, and it's very clear that th- that those are things that Tolkien is thinking about in various places. So I think I know there'd be people who are resistant to thinking about and to sort of going too far down that kind of right uh, because it, really you want it to be the characters did this, right. Sam did this. It's right. what he said because that's right. the the great power of it. This is maybe we'll talk later about the whole elves and free will thing that drives me crazy, <laughs> but. And why, when in terms of characters in a book, you don't care. They're characters. And and you immediately assume that they are like that. And so you want everything that's done to be motivated by the characters. But, yeah, and I think in the poem, The Mounds of Munberg, at the end of the Battle of Pelennor Fields, where that's where we get the other people who were killed, you know, dour-handed, you know, Donadan and and so forth, and how that's used to wrap up that battle in a way that is completely outside, because he even says years after a maker, or they put a stone on Snowmane's barrow, Snowmane's hoe, right, that says, uh, faithful servant, yet master's bane, lightfoot's foal, swift Snowmane, obviously didn't happen when they're rebuilding the city, you know, and fixing the wounded, like, oh, let's carve some stuff on a gravestone for a horse, you know. (laughs) Exactly. You tend the wounded, you make the gravestone for the horse. Yeah, it's plainly. And, and, and sort of the same with, with any of the, the poems that are made up or stuff like that. Yeah. Clearly this would have been, you know, again, we're being maybe overly realistic, but I think this is what Tolkien wants us to do. After the fact, it's made up, and it makes me think of the Battle of Malden, mm-hmm. which Tolkien says in Beowulf and the Critics, and I think it's in a note so that people don't always read it, but in Beowulf and the Critics he's talking about when... Um, Berkswald holds up his, his you know, shield and says, Kia shall the hardre, herde the kenra, mod shall the marra, quil uremia litlaf. I got it. So while our strength weakens, the mind must be stronger. And Tolkien says it's not supposed to be the idea that Berkswald actually. St- Compose that at that minute. Then he says, in typical Tolkien fashion, though he might have. <laughs> right. It's a received and honored gnome. It was, a, you know, something that, that people would have had, and he would have. It would be a cliche that he's used. Right. But he's also setting up the idea that the poet is not being a journalist. Yes. The poet saying, when you fight, and you know, probably all that Berkwald said was, <laughs> <laughs> "Kill Vikings," you know. Yeah. But that, that, that's, that's how it gets made into something like Malden, and, and clearly that's how it gets made into the Battle of the Pelmer Fields or the, the Battle of Helm's Deep in its, in its own yeah. ways, too. But you think about the, the, uh, the lovely Anglo-Saxon poetic line, though it's in modern English, that Eomir says in the middle of the battle, right, when he, when he starts speaking in alliterative verse Staves, spontaneously, yeah, right? Uh, I know, it's very, very like, and it's, it's, it's very, you know... Out of doubt, out of dark, I rode, singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. <laughs> you could definitely make fun of it in, yes. in that way, or you can make it really, you know, noble. But there's not enough time, right? There's hundreds right. of thousands of orcs with arrows coming at you, and he's like, even if he had memorized it beforehand, it's true to be like, right. kill something, you know, run. <laughs> yes. and, and, and again, like, I think that the whole Helm's Deep thing, and this is a very novelistic thing, where Thane is like, oh, I'll not be taken like a badger in a trap, or whatever. Right. It would be much more like, 
okay, this is what we're going to do. And it sort of works in the films. Mm-hmm. Lots of, you know, yeah, run, kill, and all that. Yeah. But that, that's I think that's where the whole great chain of reading comes in. And again, why people who are used to modernist novels can't figure out how to deal with it in Lord right. of the Rings, right? Because it's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's not that it's, oh, yeah, no one would ever really say that. That's not the point. Right. Right. Tolkien would say, well, they might have. They might have, exactly. You can't <laughs> they were noble that... and courtly people who had memorized lots of poetry and right. would use it at the right moments, just right. like people used to throw out quotes from Shakespeare in moments of, you know, there is a tide, and you're all supposed to go and attack something. So, Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's... it's and I think especially, um, it seems to me one of the consequences... I mean, as you say, people have these expectations from realistic novels anyway so people are often bringing that kind of thing to it but especially post film you know when people are basically sort of reading it as if it's like a screenplay or should be like a screenplay or something um and really thinking of it with that either screenplay or journalistic assumption to it um i definitely think that the, the sort of the experience of the films has made that tendency a little bit even broader than it than it would normally yeah, be. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that. It's got some unfortunate results then because of how people don't appreciate it. I mean, I think I have to sometimes work really hard with my students to make them read the poems. Right. Because all the right. backstories in the poems, you can't skip the poems. Yes. But the two things that I've heard many people say when, when teaching it, or not so much by Tolkien scholars teaching it, but like high school teachers and uh, just reading it is, well, skip the poems and skip the Council of Elrond. Oh. I'm like, what? <laughs> I had I did a radio show in New Hampshire one time, and somebody called in. He's a book a bookshop owner. He's like, that's how I get people to love it. Tell them to skip that Council of Elrond. That's the most boring chapter. I'm like, you don't understand the whole plot. Then none of it makes sense in that the Council of Elrond, but it is hard. Uh, it's and also it's brilliant. Long. Yeah, it's but... also brilliant. He's got so many different voices and voices embedded in voices, and yeah. I love the way that Tom Shippey describes it as like a, a faculty meeting, and <laughs> you know, and Elrond's got an agenda, <laughs> yes. and then Elrond's a terrible chair because he lets people just wander off all off the agenda all over the place, <laughs> and he starts talking for like six hours at yeah. the beginning, <laughs> right? I mean, that, which is typical department chair, right? <laughs> right? Well, let me tell you how this got started back three thousand years ago. <laughs> And then, yeah, they definitely see Elrond as a department chair there. Certainly certainly better than, like, Agent Smith Elrond yelling right. at everyone. I mean, yes. Elrond, he's 3,000 years old. His father was Arendil. He's met, you know, Aonway. He's seen Morgoth carted off. Really, he's going to yell at people? He right. doesn't really need to, you know? He's yeah. Elrond. Yeah, it's it's hard not to see that... It was a little jarring, the cranky Elrond that they did in the films. You know, it's like, I kind of think you'd either you'd be dead or you'd have built some patience by then, (laughs) you know, and have some perspective. I mean, okay, look, you know, things look pretty bad, and I can see people getting in a fuss, but come on. I mean, you know, I I was there at the War of Wrath. This is not that big a deal, you know. (laughs) You guys know, back when I was was an Elrond. Yes, yes, this Dark Lord is nothing compared to the one that I used to have to go against. No, I mean, there's there's all all, all manner of opportunity for him to sound like... When my dad took the silver (laughs) line... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know that 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 kind of looking at at the at the text that way, I think is is the, the films do one thing, but it lets us you know undercut it. And I also think that that's important for for Tolkien scholars in particular. We tend to be really really reverent 
toward the text, we tend to be completely dominated by the shade of John Ronald standing <laughs> behind us, you know, and, and looking over. I mean, fantasy writers even more so, I think, but yeah. scholars too. And sometimes you have to fight against that. And I'm not making a plea to be all postmodern-y, like ignore the author, because right. it's useless. There's so much. But I also don't like the idea that the author's own words on his, his work are always right, Uh he had an agenda, obviously, and a post facto agenda. And as we see from history of Middle Earth stuff, there were a lot of hesitations. And that this lecture yesterday, I was making fun of like Marmaduke, right. Brandy Buck, and Trotter, and Bingo Baggins, Bingo Baggins, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. But the the larger point is to not just blow off what Tolkien said, but also not to do sort of. There's books that are basically almost nothing but cutting apart and rearranging the letters. Right. To make the, the argument. Right. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that's a that's been a real damaging thing for Tolkien studies. It keeps everything channeled down the same roads all the time. That's why I'm so happy we're getting this work from some of these Eastern European scholars who don't seem to be in the slightest bit invested in the letters, don't seem to be in the slightest bit invested in Tolkien as Roman Catholic apologist which, by the way, I don't think he is. Right, I right. think C.S. Lewis was a Christian apologist, yes. and Tolkien was a Roman Catholic, and people are mixing them yes. them together. Yes. Now, of course, I haven't read The Ulterior Motive. Only a few people have. I don't know, you know what's in there. But I don't think that... That's the only way to read Tolkien, and there's so much. It's like a magnet, you know. It's yes. like you've got these these magnetic basin of attraction, or a black hole, or something. You're trying to move around your own. Like, right. okay, now we're at Galadriel is the Virgin Mary for the three thousandth time. Right, right. She's not. <laughs> yes, not the Virgin Mary. He was being polite in that letter to the man who said she's like the Virgin Mary. Right. She's in exile. Virgin Mary's perfect. Yeah, well, it's, and certainly his speculations about Galadriel show how unlike the Virgin Mary she is. Um, yeah, it's it's especially as you say that. Well, I was going to say respect, but of course, it's not really quite strong enough a word for what he says in the letters and things. You know, the people who will. But see, the problem is in. I mean, coming back to the metafictional stuff that we were talking about, in opening that up, he has put himself in the middle of that. You know, so basically by his own strategies, uh, there are ways, and sometimes it seems like he's he's almost aware that he's kind of working against himself because he, he did so much, especially in the letters, uh, to try to prod the reception mm-hmm. of his work and to, you know, no, 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 don't, don't think of it this way, think of it that way. But yet, of course, when his own later additions and explanations and things can get integrated into this sort of textual puzzle that he himself has created. Um, it should, I think, mm-hmm. kind of work against simply saying, well, he said in, in this letter on this page um, that he didn't think that, and so therefore there's no further discussion that right. can be and had Right, and that's even where I have the, also where I have the problem with Appendix F, for example, where right. it says the Rohirrim right. are not Anglo-Saxons in any way. And, I mean, that's ridiculous. They're in, in many ways they are. Yes. And he, he has a piece that's quoted by Stuart Lee in the the edition of The Wanderer that, that was in the last volume of Tolkien Studies and also in, in Stuart Lee and um, Elizabeth Solipova's the, the Keys of Middle-Earth book, that he's really fierce on Burton Raphael saying, no one could learn anything about Anglo-Saxon England or Old English from my 
things I never intended they should. They're nothing like it. I mean, come on. You adapted lines from The Wanderer. Yes. You know, I get what's going on here. And it's the same thing as sneaking in, you know, the ancestors of the Anglo-Saxons as having Gothic names. Right. Or translating Geatland as Gothland in the one little bit of the Beowulf translation that, that, that was published in the Clark Hall preface on translating Beowulf. You know, that's like having it both ways. Like, I really think this, but I'm not going to, I can't prove it. I'm not going to say it as a medievalist. But, you know, yeah, and, and his persona, you say respect or it's the, it's the professor. You know, people right. raise a glass to the professor, not right. to Tolkien, but the professor right. on right. January 3rd. And I think that it has its its good side and its bad side. And the other problem is, where do you start to draw these these lines? Because I'm thinking of the people who are not at all interested in or knowledgeable. I don't think they've read the letters. For example, that, that issue of modern fiction studies that, that Sean Hughes edited. And Sean Hughes turns out to really know a lot about Tolkien. He's very does some really great reviews for, for uh, Tolkien studies. But I thought that issue was terrible because it was clear that, to me, that most or maybe all of the contributors hadn't really read anything but The Lord of the Rings, maybe The Silmarillion, certainly not the you know, the whole history of Middle-earth material as well as, like, unfinished tales, and and certainly not the letters. So on the one hand, if you totally ignore the letters and that stuff, you end up just with, I think, bad criticism. It just, it, right. it, it also, it showed that, oh, sure, you can assimilate Tolkien to the kind of paradigm of post-colonial X or, you know, binary opposition Y or something, but the only way you do that is by excluding everything really interesting that we know about it already. And it does sort of show that that model is, is sort of a machine for grinding out papers about literature. It doesn't tell right. us anything about Tolkien. But if that's the one extreme, then sort of like Joseph Pierce's book, which is really re- reorganizing the letters to, to make an argument through the letters, is the other extreme. And I don't think that either of those – and again – they're not terrible. You get some interesting insights from the modern fiction thing. And the Joseph Pierce book has a, a lot of interesting juxtapositions of different parts of letters brought here to there, or stuff from, from on fairy stories put in there and so forth. But it just doesn't seem to me that, that's a, that either mode is a real viable way of doing criticism that you read and you're like, wow, I hadn't thought of that before. Like I really didn't get that. Like when you read a great article like Gerke Nash's Great Chain of Reading or – uh, you know some of the like everything that Shippy ever wrote, and you know some of the really solid pieces of Tolkien studies that you that you read, and say, ah, oh, I see how that's working now, and and it the the over reverence for on the one side, and the I don't only need to bother to read the paperback Valentine edition published work because I'm going to talk about uh, racism with orcs or something like that. Right. On the other hand, and I just don't think that either of those are a good way to go, and. You know, I, I do because of editing Tolkien studies. I read. You know, we we probably reject four times as many articles as we're able to accept. Probably because there's three editors and each of us has a veto. <laughs> I feel bad for our authors who submit because you know it's like two of us will be like, "It's really good." No, definitely not. <laughs> but we we do that. So the way we do the, the process that we've developed is pretty interesting because in the first couple issues, we ended up publishing a couple pieces that. Yeah, now looking back, maybe you shouldn't have. So now it has to get through all three of us before it goes to an outside reader, and the outside reader can bounce it. Um, so it's very hard, you know, to to get things. But I read a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff, and it seems to me that the things that I that open my eyes and say, "Wow, that's really cool," are those that avoid those polls. 
mm-hmm. also recently, it just seems to be stuff done by by new new people coming right. along, not yeah. by people who've been doing Tolkien studies for twenty five years, but people who just got started, which is really cool. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you as a as a professional philologist, uh, and I am not a professional <laughs> philologist. A lot of people will ask me because, of course, you know, for very understandable reasons, there are a lot of people who either are interested in philology and become interested in Tolkien, or or the other way around. Usually, the other way around. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very precious in both senses. Few for the ones who go the, the other right, way. Yes, who sort of come uh, come out of middle school with a love of. Philology and 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 use that to find Tolkien. I suppose that's comparatively rare. Yeah. But anyway, um, who who will ask me? You know, who are interested in, in 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 learning more about philology and where to start and what do I do? What would you say to such people? Uh, I would say that you are in the same frustrated position I am in because I, I I don't know if I would call myself a professional philologist because I'm not well enough trained in in comparison to my own generation. I'm fine maybe even sort of okay to the previous generation. In comparison to Tolkien's generation, he would just be appalled. He would be so appalled that someone could be a full professor, have a PhD, and not know so many things. And that's just the way graduate training has changed, and and I wasn't trained in it in a systematic way. Partly also because there is no good systematic way of training in philology. Oh, there's a way, but it's to go to Germany and sit in a proper <laughs> seminar and you, you will learn the philology. You know, so I'm working with Scott Kleinman. I don't know if you know Scott. He's a no, professor at Cal State Northridge, and he's a Cambridge PhD. And we were talking about this. We have students who want to learn philology. He knows more philology than me. He did his work in Cambridge. But I would like to learn more, and I would like to teach it. But there's no book. There's, you know... Prokofiev's comparative grammar of Indo-European, and you know, there's Campbell's utterly brilliant and completely unreadable grammar of Anglo-Saxon England, and there's lots of books like that that don't tell you how to do philology. So Scott and I started writing a column for the online journal The Heroic Age, and it's it, well, it was going to be called Doing Philology, and then they changed the name on us. Um, so it's called Philological Inquiries, which is a hat tip to Tom Shippey, and. What we're doing is we take work that someone else has done and explain how they did it. So it's really weird, like meta, meta scholarship or something. So we right. took Tom Shippey's work on the word Merovingians and Beowulf and showed how Tom did it. And the one that's coming out right now is we did Christine Franzen's work on the tremulous hand of Worcester and explained how she got from different kinds of squiggly glosses to reconstructing a cultural history of the West Midlands. And the next one we're doing, I think, is going to be on semantic change just because I want to call it um, lewd, drunk, and quaint. <laughs> and, and if you know Chaucer, you know that quaint yes, is, uh, yes, yes. which I'm not going to say in the podcast. Right. But, this, but this is if, a family show. Yeah, a family show. can't say what quaint is. You can look it up on your own, yes. and it'll be in Latin, and then you know you're okay. You can read dirty words in Latin. Right, they actually right. did that with additions to the penitentials. Oh, yeah. They translated the Anglo-Saxon to modern English until they got to the sexual stuff, and then they translated the Anglo-Saxon to Latin. <laughs> Assumingly, if you knew Latin... Right. It was okay for you to read dirty things. It was only those poor souls who didn't know any Latin. And th- that goes off in so many directions we don't want to go right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but anyway, so um, working with Scott, what we're going to do is take these columns and, and, and kind of develop them more and try to come up with like a case book rather than a textbook that's going to be called Philology Reborn. And at least if nothing else, I hope it has a brilliant cover. Scott came right. up with this cover. It's going to be uh, Botticelli's the birth of Venus, except instead of coming out of the shell, it will be 
Jacob Grimm. <laughs> His full German German glory coming. Philology reborn. So that's the that's the that's the plan. But that's a real problem, and it it really shouldn't be done by me. It should be done by someone great like Mechthild Gretsch. But great philologists are publishing other stuff, and and the problem is that it's always been taught by this apprentice system, which is breaking down because of just graduate education and stuff like that. So if you want to be a philologist, you have a choice. You can be a medievalist and hope to land with someone who's more philological and there's fewer of them every year. Or you can be a linguist who then does the problem with linguists. Actually, where am I coming up? The problem with linguists. But the problem with linguists, <laughs> as I've learned, is that not all of them, but a large part of mainstream linguistics has dropped philology hmm. because they don't necessarily want to have fights with the English people. There was this I mean, this is going into, you know, I sound like Elrond here, fighting the long <laughs> defeat, right? But the long defeat was in the 70s when stylistics started to evolve. A bunch of very famous English professors like Stanley Fish and a few others conspired to strangle it in its crib. Right. And the, now the stylistic linguists, they had tenure. So they didn't get fired. They just took their ball and left. They left the English departments, they founded departments of linguistics, and they basically left literature alone. There's a very small group of linguists who do linguistics and literature. Most of them have to, it's not worth it. It's not worth fighting with the English department. It's not worth having the English department come in and tell you, oh, well, you're not paying attention to what Derrida said about this. Like, excuse me, we're doing sound changes, you know. Yeah. But so they, they, they've not done literary texts. So there's historical linguistics that doesn't look at the literary content of the text very much. There's modern cutting-edge post-Chomsky linguistics that doesn't have anything to do with old things at all or with literature. There's this tiny group of stylists who are all stylistic people who are almost all like in their like late 60s and about to retire. And they're all deans places, so I'm, I hope they get that their last bit. They get their revenge and they put you know linguistic-minded people. And then there's people in medieval studies who do philology, but not always in a systematic fashion, unless you're at Oxford or Cambridge. I mean, even in the U.S., there's only a few places. I'd say like Illinois really is still great on philology. But I'm not sure where else. Notre Dame, but in a systematic way in the English department, not many places. Maybe Minnesota, too, because they have such strong Germanic linguistics. But so that's why we need a book. We need a book better than the one I'm writing. Doesn't that undercut my own book before it's out? But we need a we need an even we need I think we need Philology Reborn to give it to to smart undergrads, to grad students and say, here's a way of looking at the world. And then we need a good philological textbook that says, here's how you do it, rather than, here's Campbell's grammar, figure it out for yourself. Right. right. I defy you to figure out <laughs> Campbell's grammar. I think it has 816 section numbers, you know, and, and it's just, it, it's essential, and it's just impossible also. And yeah. then the other thing, the sort of amateur philology side of things that you can do that's just fun is to get Dr. Onions, actually, he would. He was Tolkien's. Uh, Tolkien knew him. Apparently, pronounced it on ions. He, he was from Birmingham. He said on ions, not onions, but he looks like onions. Doctor Onions, Oxford uh, Dictionary of Etymology, and it's it's just it's not expensive. It's you know it's not out of print. It's not really old, and that's a great place just to just to start looking things up and making the connections for yourself. And then the other thing is you just you learn Old English, Middle English, Old Norse. Gothic um, spreads out from there because then you start to see the patterns and feel the patterns, which is I think even more important. It's, it's right. just to feel that you can you can memorize Grimm's law all you want, but when you really internalize 
that something, and I, I had an experience with this. This is my little story. I got an email from a guy in Poland who was asking me, he had listened to my history of language course on recorded books. I haven't listened to it in Poland. I guess audible.com or something. But yeah, probably. He, uh, and he said, you know, I was wondering, you didn't say anything about that the, the Polish word for father and the Russian word for father, they're in Indo-European languages, but it's atza, and I don't really don't want to do the Polish one from memory. It's very close. It's like atziets or something like that. And those are very different than all these pater, father, padre things. And I was able just off the top of my head without having studied to say, well, wait, the other word for father in Gothic is ata. And, okay, if the, then Indo-European word must be something like uh, pater. If you drop off that P, ata, easy to become that R, turn into ata in Gothic, and probably Gothic is Eastern and Balto-Slavic is... Gothic Gothic's Eastern Germanic, but Balto-Slavic is a, another branch of the Indo-European, and that must be what happened. You get the drop-off and then all those ah words for father. Now, I don't obviously not original. People have done it a million times, but that's the real fun of philology is when you can actually do it off the top of your head and turn out that it's right because you've, you picked it up. And, and basically it's learning lots of languages, but learning a systematic connection, and it's hard to do. You know, when there's not a lot of time in, in undergraduate education to say, oh, yeah, I want to pick up six or seven Germanic languages. Right, you know, right. It was easier when you were on a, uh, had a little Victorian age, you know, living stipend to spend a few years at the university and didn't really have to do anything but this stuff. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you mentioned in your talk yesterday the the way in which philology just seems like magic sometimes to people outside. Like somehow we know we can reconstruct this entire language for which there are no written documents surviving at all. And <laughs> No language evolved more quickly in the 19th century than Proto-Indo-European. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's... And you know, to people who have no experience at all, it seems it will either like magic or or or... or charlatanism of course yeah right or you're just making stuff up especially right. I, th I think it was George Bernard Shaw or somebody else was complaining about it that it's like well the, the consonants mean almost nothing and the vowels mean nothing at all and so because <laughs> about false cognates and right. and you read one of the, my favorite uh, books really is is Principles of Etymology of English Etymology by the Reverend Walter W. Scant and he is the grumpiest old man <laughs> and at least eight times he goes on that the word in German for bite in, in, in Bison is not the ancestor of the English word bite. It's just wrong. And people who tell you this are idiots. And he, by like the fourth time he says, I am belaboring this point because I, <laughs> you can see that he's gone to lunch in the faculty club and somebody said this again and he's just gone completely, you know, bonkers over it. But th that's, you know, that the thing about philology that, that happened post Grimm and this was and it came very late to English the English were sort of just like fossicking around and looking at manuscripts and guessing until John Mitchell Kemble who was he was like writing things like and really these other professors need to be beaten with a ferrule I'm not making this up you know it, it didn't really do much for his popularity when he's they're so stupid and they need beatings and then they'll learn properly how to construe their grammar but it is a system, and, and the Germans are still very unforgiving about this. I've seen Mechthild Gresh absolutely eviscerate someone at a conference because there's a, an Anglo-Saxon word, fulwicht, which means baptize. And this person's like, well, wouldn't it be thinking that, that, that they must have taken fulwicht as completely white or completely cleansed? And she's like, 
This is not possible. There's a nice, perfectly good German word. It's a, it's a you know, don't make up these silly things and, I mean, just like reduce this person to a quivering lump because that's not, the, the vowels wouldn't have been the same. You know, it wouldn't have, have worked out. It's not a, even a pun in Anglo-Saxon because they wouldn't have put it together that way. But it does, and, and, and philologists are jerks about stuff like that. We love that we've got this one little, aha, I've caught you being wrong and I'm going to make fun of you forever. And, and I think it's very bad. I mean, it's, it's, it makes it fun to be an insider. It's very hard to get in, alienates people, and doesn't explain how it works. So, like, you know, one of the things that Shippy points out, which is brilliant, is that the cognate word in Indo-European for finger and fiction, it all goes back to dough, something you manipulate with your fingers and move mm. with your hands, and that seems brilliant. But then you look at the word dough, and you look at the word <laughs> finger or fiction and you're like no <laughs> you know and that, that's the the part of philology that, that drives people crazy and is also it seems like magic but the thing that Grimm did it's like darwin he came up with a system of rules that worked and then the brilliance of it was even the exceptions ended up turning out to be part of the rule so Grimm's law says these particular consonants shift in one way aha i found 20 examples where they don't shift and Werner comes along and says ah they don't shift if there was a stressed syllable in this part of the word and what wow that all made sense of it and then i mutation comes along and someone described this as grimm's law Werner's law and i mutation rising in successive terraces of horror to be part <laughs> of the because it wasn't taught well because right. every it was assumed everyone needed to know it and everyone should know it and all english professors should know this stuff and they don't i mean my colleagues i was horrified they thought they were being funny. It was in a meeting, and I said something that we should have, you know, our students should know what Grimm's Law is. And they all started giggling because they didn't know what Grimm's Law was. Right. A bunch of PhDs, some of them very senior. That's appalling. And that's not any different anywhere else. You know, it, it would be as, as bad as if me, as a medievalist, and I didn't know who Toni Morrison was. You know, I and it's it's asymmetric, and, and people are forgetting their own past. And I'm not going to be like, oh, in the olden days, it was so great. And there were there were definitely things wrong with it, but we've lost a really useful foundation. And the only reason I'm hopeful is, in my experience, the current students are way more interested in that than they're interested in kind of that. I think of it as like '70s, '80s, not even like '90s stuff, but kind of. But you know, the senior faculty is kind of let's talk about ambiguity in the Scarlet Letter. Right. I think of that as very high school because that's what yeah. was popular in high yeah. school when I yeah. went through. And yeah. I think that when I when I go talk in high school is when I talk to other things. Students are inspired by the idea of the individual word and the, the rules and the language. But now the problem is institutional. Right. And so we have to clearly, you know take things over and do a long march to the institutions and purge our enemies and oh, sound like Saruman there. You know? exactly. exactly. Or we could... We will never be defeated! We could, we, could, we could start uttering staves like in the Battle of Malden. Heart must be the keener. Vowel changes must be paid attention to. Yeah, well, we'd have to do like Amir and think it out carefully in advance first. Thinking of the academic changes in revolutions in the academic world because um, of course another thing people ask me needless to say even more than about philology in particular um, is just about Tolkien studies in general and people who you know who, who would like to study Tolkien more and are thinking about graduate school and what's your sense of sort of where things are going with that well, there seem to be more, like I said all these new PhDs publishing with us so maybe it's not the, the kiss of death uh, you know, at this up to this point, I know of only one person in an academic job who did a 
PhD on Tolkien, and that's Verlin Flieger. Now, she did that PhD in, like, 1975, so really pioneer, right. and, and did that. I don't know anyone else. All the rest of us are medievalists right. who have done other things, but this was the most bizarre thing. This summer, I was on a dissertation committee at the University of Western Ontario for a guy who really was an Anglo-Saxonist, but did his dissertation on 19th century medievalists and leading up to Tolkien, but did it on Charles Kingsley and the Water Babies and other people like that. So he was really an Anglo-Saxonist, packaged himself as a Tolkienian, and got a tenure-track job. So maybe this is, you know, a, a sign of things. And, and the good thing is he was doing it, and he was looking at, you know, trendy topics. It was about race and, and empire and stuff. But it was basically doing good, solid Tolkien studies. And so that may be, you know, one of the things is Tolkien courses enroll a lot. Right. And students like them, and you can push them very hard in those classes compared to other ones. So will Tolkien enter the, the curriculum in, in some way? I think... I still think it would be exceedingly risky to go do a PhD in Tolkien only. You'd really have made yourself uh, so highly specialized. But students have said, how do I do this? And I don't want to be a medievalist. Well, what's wrong with you? But uh, <laughs> right. I don't think you can really be a great Tolkien scholar without being a medievalist of some kind. I just don't think... I mean, it, there's too much that you just miss, that you don't get. You don't get the jokes. You don't get the explanations. Maybe that's unfair. You know, can you really be a good Nabokov scholar if you don't know a lot about butterflies? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. Or can you work on William Carlos Williams if you're not a physician? You know, I, I right. don't know. But it seems to me that it's like a deliberate handicap. But I can see that the, the places to go if you didn't want to be a medievalist who also did Tolkien would be to kind of find out Tolkien's cultural milieu which would be either as a World War I writer, which is, mm -hmm. I think, where you can go. There's some, mm -hmm. And some minor World War I writers, too, as well as the big ones like Siegfried Sassoon and stuff like that. But like uh, Radcliffe Hall, this kind of strange lesbian writer, but has all kinds of stuff of the land off to the west where everything is perfect. And you can sort of see these things bubbling around in the same time period. Or as sort of a Tolkien as the last of the 19th century fantasist children's writers, the Edwardians right. and, and Victorians, flower, the stuff Dimitrofimi's done on the flower fairies and, and Victorian fairyology. So that would be another way to position yourself looking at Tolkien. Shippies proposed that you look at Tolkien as the group of writers between the wars with um, William Golding and Lord of the Flies, T.H. White, Tolkien, George Orwell, Ursula Le Guin. I think Ursula Le Guin, I really think of Ursula Le Guin as a post-60s writer. I know that she... And Shippy does too, really, but he puts it in the trailing end of that group. And that's another way of, of, of doing it, of, of putting it in some kind of cultural context. And I mean, you could also take a gamble and go with the uh, fantasy genre in general in pop culture. I mean, there, you know, there are tenure lines in science fiction. I don't really know of any that are truly in fantasy by itself. But, right. you know, the other opportunities are linking up Tolkien with um, Howard. And we only think of the Conan you know, the, the movie or something, but as I have been very strenuously told by the people who study Howard, and they turn out to be right, Howard's stuff is way more sophisticated and interesting and very Tolkien-esque in a lot of ways. Uh, I still tend to think of him as being a little bit more Robert Jordany and the little, the detailed politics of the world in, in a way of like this kingdom fought this kingdom, which is in the appendices in Tolkien more than right. anything else. But so Howard and um, H.P. Lovecraft, and the Lovecraftians tell me, I don't know if this is true or not, they seem to think we Tolkienists are 
way ahead of them when they're trying to follow us in the paradigm of getting their texts in order and getting their journal in order and, and building up like that. And like, I mean, it was bizarre to hear, I wish our field could be organized like yours. <laughs> like, <laughs> you don't know, organized like ours. Are you kidding me? But, but the, you know, Try so, some lofty aspirations. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, but the, the Lovecraftians are, are sort of, you know, coming along there. And Lovecraft is getting a surprising amount. Now, partly, I mean, this is un, only marginally unfair. What am I going to say? It's 30% unfair, what I'm going to say. But it's, you know, <laughs> right. it's unfair because you, with Howard and Lovecraft, you can do your um, chest-bearing, oh, look at these horrible racist people and what they're saying, which will, you know, make your... Uh, Colleagues respect your political bona fides, which is pathetic that this has to be done, but is probably a reasonable survival technique, sadly, to say. I mean, I, I just don't have a lot of time to devote to pointing out how great I am compared to my ancestors. You know, right. Either it goes without saying uh, how great I am, or, um, <laughs> or it's really not the comparison that we really want to delve into much, because there were some things that the ancestors were pretty much better than us at, too. So. Yeah. But it's it's hard to tell, you know. The act, right now, the academic job market is so miserable you can't tell. But will areas open up? Uh, I think with as people study games more, and yeah. that moves into the, the English department and uh, metafiction, fan fiction, the, the explosion of stuff. I mean, can you be uh, a fantasy person? I think that you're right now. You're in danger if you work on Harry Potter, unless. You want to say how stupid and bad and terrible and evil it is. Right. But that may change, too. And, you know, does Rowling enter the canon? Well, at least you make the argument that it's popular. And there's so many people that, that it's important to analyze this. I would say that's so popular. Fantasy is the greatest mass market genre out there. All the films, you have to analyze it. But then I don't think that the pop culture people tend to know enough about Tolkien. Is their problem. Like, they just watch the films. Yeah. And... That's true. You can make the argument that the films, you know, they got billions of people around the world saw the films and didn't read the books and don't know squat about the words for King and Rohan, but we are scholars. We need to know that stuff, whether the audience knows it or not. You know, that's my... I sound like the Reverend Walter W. Skeet, you know. And don't tell me bite comes from Bison. I'll beat you with a ferrule. Actually, Kemmel was the beating one. But still, you can yeah. see Walter Skeet's also thing was that women shouldn't be allowed into Cambridge because women are never smart enough to do research. So he had his issues too, you know. But but really good etymologist. And actually, here's another interesting connection. James Joyce's. One of James Joyce's favorite possessions was Skeet's Etymological Dictionary. Really? And Tolkien won the Walter Skeet Prize and used it to buy William Morris books, but he also owned Skeet's books and etymology. So Tolkien and Joyce connected in yet another way. And that was all we had time for. Stay tuned in the next few days for several more episodes. I have a few more conversations coming, the recording of last night's Skype session, and those new Hobbit lectures, which are now in progress. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.